Let's turn to Genesis chapter 48. And while you're turning there, I'd like you to imagine that you are at the end of your life. And imagine that you have kids, you maybe already do, or if you don't, imagine that you do, and that, that your, your kids are there, and you're going to be sharing with your children your last words. There you are, end of your life, your children are there, and you're sharing your last words. What would you say? What wisdom would you impart to them? What counsel, what, what encouragement, what, what expressions of love and affection and gratitude would you give to them? What, what would you want to impart to them? If you were there, coming to the end of your life, and you're sharing your last words. Now, the reason I want you to think about that is because that's what's happening in Genesis 48 and 49, next, to, next week as well. Jacob is sharing his last words with his sons. In chapter 48, he's sharing his last words with Joseph and Joseph's sons, and then next week he includes all the rest of, of Joseph's brothers. Now, let me put this in context of the big picture of Genesis so we see why this section is so important. Remember Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God created the heavens and the earth with such power and such wisdom and such love and goodness that it's clear that we have every reason to trust God perfectly, to obey him instantly, and to love him supremely. Because the display of God's power, wisdom, and goodness through creation. And yet, tragically, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve did what we've all done. They turned their backs on God and they rebelled against him. They sinned. And the result of that was that sin filled the earth, God's judgment came upon Adam and Eve and upon the earth, and in chapters 4 through 11, what we see is sin spreading until it looks like there's, there's no godliness left on planet earth. But in chapter 12, then, God raises up Abraham and gives Abraham an astonishing promise. He says, Abraham, through your offspring, my blessing is going to come to people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. The blessing of forgiveness of sins, the blessing of salvation will come to, to all the people groups of the earth. Now, the rest of the Bible explains who was the offspring of Abraham who fulfilled that promise. And who was that? Jesus Christ. Now, come on, church. We can do better than that, okay? Jesus Christ is born in the bloodline of Abraham. He's the offspring of Abraham. And by Dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he purchased salvation for people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And the rest of the Bible shows Jesus fulfilling that promise. In the rest of the book of Genesis, the life of Abraham, the life of Isaac, the life of Jacob, the life of Joseph, throughout those four men's lives, we see God repeating this promise of salvation so we really learn it. And we see God protecting and securing this promise of salvation through Jesus so that nothing will stop it. That's the whole rest of the book. And so here now in Genesis 48 and 49, Jacob gives his last words to his sons. And in chapter 48, it's his last words to Joseph. So let's start by asking this. What is the focus of Jacob's last words to Joseph? Look at verses 1 through 4. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he, Joseph, took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, 
And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, that's Jacob, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So notice in verse 4 that the focus of Jacob's last words to Joseph are the promises, the promises that God gave Jacob back in Genesis chapter 35 when he appeared to him, which are the same promises that God had already given to Abraham and to Isaac. And there's two main promises here in verse 4. I want us to look at each of them and really understand what they're saying. The first, right at the beginning of verse 4, God is talking to Jacob. Jacob quotes what God said to him. And it's, behold, God says, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples. Now, throughout Genesis, we've heard God promise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he was going to make of them a great nation, the people of Israel, right? The people, singular, of of Israel. But here God says he's going to make them a company of peoples, plural. How does that work? How does it happen? It's through Jesus. Let me explain. This is so important for you to understand because you are in this chapter. God did raise up the people of Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesus was born of the people of Israel. So Jesus was born, and Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life, the perfectly sinless life that we should have lived, and Jesus died a death of punishment for sins, the death that we deserve to die. And Jesus was of the people of Israel. So when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, when you turn from sin and said, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior and my my Lord and my treasure, at that moment you were joined to Jesus. You became one with Jesus. You were united with Christ. You experienced what, what theologians call union with Christ. And so his sinless life became your sinless life. You're covered with his sinlessness right now and God looks at you by faith alone in Jesus Christ. His sinless life became your sinless life and his death of punishment for sin became his death of punishment for your sin. So the death that you owe, the punishment that you deserved, that you faced was all poured out upon Jesus. You face no more punishment like Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So his sinless life became yours. His death punishment for sin became your, his death punishment for your sin. And because he is of the offspring of Abraham and you're joined to him, you become of the offspring of Abraham. You might think, where does the Bible say that? I'm glad you asked. Look at Romans, no, I'm sorry, Galatians. Where is it? I'm blanking out here. Oh, there it is, Romans 4.13. No, it's over here. It's Galatians 3.29. You were right, okay. 
This is an amazing promise. It's so important that you understand this, all of us Gentile believers, okay? Galatians 3.29, he's talking to Gentiles. He says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Let me read that again. If you, he's talking to Gentiles, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So through Jesus, we Gentiles become Abraham's offspring. That's how God made the people of Israel, the people, singular of Israel, become a company of peoples because people from every nation will put their trust in Jesus Christ and then they are joined into the offspring of Abraham. They're joined into the people of Israel and Israel becomes a company of peoples. So underline that phrase in verse four, company of peoples. Here's what this means. Because you are trusting Jesus Christ, you are in that company of peoples. Did you know that you were right here in the first book of the Bible, right there? Genesis chapter 48, verse four. You are found in the first book of the Bible. And what this means is that the rest of this promise in verse four applies to you because you are part of Jacob's offspring. Let's read the whole verse, the whole promise. Behold, God says, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Okay, so because you're trusting Jesus, you're joined to Jesus, and Jesus is Jacob's offspring, and that means you become part of Jacob's offspring because of union with Christ, which means you are going to receive this promise of land as an everlasting possession. What does that mean? Might be a brand new thought for some of you, so just sit tight. Let's, I want to see if I can persuade you. This is what's going on here. Company of peoples who are the offspring of Jacob through faith in Christ, and we receive the land. What's going on here? Remember, God has promised to the people of Israel the land of Palestine, the land of Canaan, and he gave that to them about 400 years later. Gave it to them through Joshua, through David, through, through King Solomon, but that was just the beginning of God's gift of land because what God's ultimate plan is is to give God's people, this company of peoples from every nation, tongue, and tribe who are all joined together in Christ to give them not just the land of Palestine, Canaan, but the whole earth. And look at Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Romans 4, 13. Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, through not eating pork or through being circumcised, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And then look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, what's going on here? When Jesus comes back, God's power is going to transform the present heavens and the present earth into the new heavens and the new earth, brand new earth. 
And this brand new earth is going to be cleansed from every remnant, from the curse and from sin and from judgment. It's going to be a beautiful earth with no more cancer, no more, no more cockroaches, okay? Or, or I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe they'll be changed and become things, we'll really be grateful for them. I don't know, but not as we know them now. They're going to be gone. Um, but but on, a, on a much more serious nature, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, a, a new heavens and a new earth, and the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Just think this, you've, you've had times as, as, as you've sought the Lord in these last weeks or months, as you've been praying, as you've been in the word, God gives each of his children times where we taste of his glory. We don't just know about it as important as that is, but, but we feel his glorious presence, we behold his glory, we love his glory, we taste his glory, and there's nothing as satisfying as beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. Well, the earth is gonna be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And you're going to inherit that world. That's what is promised here in verse four to this company of peoples, which includes you because you're trusting in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? This is very big, Grace Church, very big. So Jacob's last words to Joseph focus on God's promise that he's going to save people from every nation, tongue, and tribe through Jesus Christ and give them the, the new heavens and the new earth. That's God's promise in the very first book of the Bible. And just let, let this just enlarge your view of, of what God's doing. He is saving people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And I just want to bring this home to us because many of, I would guess many of us struggle with racism. Some race you look down on. I mean, every race can look down on some people from other races. It's just part of our pride. It's, and I want to encourage you that racism is incompatible with trust in the blood of Christ, the trust in the cross, because on the cross, Jesus purchased salvation for people from every race and every ethnic group. And here in Abu Dhabi, we have an amazing uh, opportunity to display the beauty of Christ because people from all different nations are here. That's why we like to have you share what country you're from. And here we can display to Abu Dhabi and to the UAE that Jesus Christ brings all the races together. And the glory of Jesus Christ is so great, the fullness of heart we experience in him is so beautiful that it melts away the pride and the racism that can come so we can truly love each other and display to the UAE and display to Abu Dhabi the glorious, unifying, racism-conquering power of Jesus Christ. And that's a huge part of our vision here at Grace Church. And let me just nudge you in this direction. We are all grateful for people from our own countries that are here, right? You can get together and talk about the Georgia Bulldogs or whatever they are, okay? Or, or you know, talk about you know, the different foods you have from your country and, and you can talk your own native language together, right? And, and we love that and that's a beautiful gift from God and thank him for it and enjoy it. But press in to becoming friends with people from other countries here. Press into becoming friends with people from other ethnicities or races here. God will bless that and God will be glorified through that. So let, just let this stir in our hearts again the importance of pressing against racism. But just notice also how big God's love and glorious plan of salvation here in this promise. God's plan is to save men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe and to give them 
a new heavens and a new earth, which is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That is big. What a massive plan of salvation. What a loving God. What a glorious God. What a merciful, compassionate God, especially when we think about the fact that we've all rebelled against him. We all turned our backs against our creator. We all would have been there saying, crucify, crucify him if we would have been there. And he sent his own son to die so that we could be forgiven. What glory, what love, what beauty. Just let this enlarge your picture of who God is with his promises there in chapter four. And this is the promise that Jacob focuses his last words on as he's talking to Joseph. Do you see why he's focusing on here, on this promise? It's beautiful. But there's more. Why does Jacob make Joseph's sons his own? It's very, very puzzling. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says to Joseph, Now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, your two sons are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers, in their inheritance. Why does Jacob make Joseph's two sons his own? Now, it's hard to be sure. I want to be very clear when there's questions that are raised in passages and, and we're not sure. It's important to say we're not sure. There's about seven or eight possibilities I saw in different commentators I looked at. Let me share with you the one, though, that I think makes the most sense. You do your own study on it. See if this makes sense to you. Notice how Jacob emphasizes that Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were born in Egypt. He explicitly emphasizes that. So think of them born in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh, to Joseph's wife, Potiphar, who was an Egyptian woman. They were born there, so they were half Egyptian. Surely Joseph told them about God, but they were half Egyptian. They were raised in Egypt. They would have seen themselves as Egyptians. So Jacob wants them to understand two things. One is that even though they're half Egyptian, they are fully part of God's people. Even though they're half Egyptian, they are fully welcomed in as part of God's people. And see, all through the Old Testament, we see instances of people who are not 100% Jewish who are counted as fully part of God's people of Israel. Think about, remember Ruth, who was a Moabite, and Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. Okay, this is Ruth. Think about um, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who was from Midian. Again, counted as part of God's people. By trusting what God would do through the Messiah, they were joined into God's people and fully counted as part of the people of Israel. And that's what's going on here. That's the first reason I think that Jacob wants to do this because he wants his grandsons and Joseph to understand that they are fully part of God's people. Then I think there's a second reason, and these overlap, is to help them see, help these sons see they now have a new identity. They're still Egyptian, yes, 
and all that culture is important and, and God created every different culture and ethnicity and, and racial, racial group for a reason. So that's important that they're Egyptian, but there's an even more important identity to them and that is they're now part of God's people. They're joined into God's people and with God's people are called to pursue God's purposes. And he wants them to understand this new identity. And I just thought this is important for us to stand, understand as well. I mean, you might be a Nigerian, you might be a Brit, you might be a Colombian, whatever it might be, and those are all important, and we thank God for our cultural, racial, national background. But because you're trusting Jesus, you have a far more important identity in terms of who you are. You're a part of God's people. You are joined into God's people to be working together to accomplish God's purposes. And in the New Testament, the way that that looks is by each of us becoming part of a local church. That's how we live that out. That's how we express that. And I want to call you, if you're not already, to become part of a strong, Bible-preaching, Jesus-loving, evangelical church here in Abu Dhabi. And praise God, he's raising up a number of them. So exciting what God is doing in raising up strong churches that love Jesus and preach the Bible. And Grace Church may not be the one God calls you to be a part of, but join some church here. You need this. Abu Dhabi is a hard place to be a follower of Jesus. You need to be part of a church with brothers and sisters around you, praying for you and loving you. So understand, by faith in Christ, you're joined to God's people, and that is expressed by becoming part of a church. We'd love it if it was Grace but there's lots of churches, we're all on the same team together, we're all pursuing the same things, we wanna advance the gospel here, so become part of a church while you're here. Not just attending on Friday mornings, but really becoming part of a group of people where you know them, they know you, they're praying for you, you're praying for them, you're laboring together for the gospel. Let's do that. That's, I think, the reasons why Jacob makes Joseph's sons his own. But then what he says next is, is also hard to understand. He describes Rachel's burial. Why does Jacob describe Rachel's burial? This is the last words, very important. Why does he go off in this little different topic here? Look at verse seven. He says, as for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel, this is Jacob's wife, Rachel, died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Why does Jacob describe the burial of Rachel? Remember that the land of Canaan did not yet belong to Israel. It still belonged to the, the Canaanites. And yet Jacob, as he was traveling through that land and Rachel died, he buried his wife in the land of Canaan, which was still a foreign land. It, it didn't yet belong to the people of Israel. So why does he do that? And why does he remind Joseph that he did that? I think it's to show Joseph how confident Jacob was in God's promise. That God had promised to give them this land and that God always keeps his promises so Joseph, I knew God would give us this land, so I went ahead and buried Rachel there, my precious wife's body. I buried her body there in this land, which was not yet ours, because I knew God would give us the land, and her burial place would be respected and honored. 
I think that's what's going on here. Jacob trusted God's promise, and he wanted to help Joseph understand how much he trusted God's promise. And I think Jacob would want us to understand today how much he trusted God's promise so that we will trust God's promise. God will fulfill his promise, Grace Church, and give us the land. The new heavens, the new earth, which is filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that future destiny of yours, because you're trusting Jesus Christ, that is secured for you by Jesus' finished work on the cross. It is secured. You will be there. The good work that he has started in you, he will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. You will be there. It is a secure future. It is a certain future. It is your future. And Jacob would say, trust God. He's promised it. He will do it. So trust that promise. I just thought of some ways that that could help us. Those of you who are going through some deep waters of difficult trials this morning, I would urge you, trust God's promise of the, the land, the new heavens and the new earth. That is your certain destiny. So, so lift your eyes above the trial, look down to where you're going, and let that give you strength today and hope today and peace today to endure the trial that you're going through now. Also, let this strengthen you against temptation. Some of you are battling significant temptation, I would imagine. You may even feel like you're close to just you know, waving the white flag and surrendering to the temptation. But look at the destiny that's before you. The new heavens, the new earth, which is filled with the glory of the Lord. Look at the destiny that is coming, which will make your battle against temptation worth it all. Look at that and, and then fight against that temptation because you see the destiny that is yours, what has been secured for you. Do that. Let this deepen your love for each other. Oh, church, let the hope of heaven so fill us and so humble us that it melts away bitterness towards other people, unforgiveness towards other people, distance from other people. Let him fill you with the joy of heaven and humble you with the joy of heaven so that we love each other. Love each other, church. And then let this make you bold in witness. Be bold in witness. Oh, church, we are surrounded here in Abu Dhabi by people who do not know Christ. You'll, you'll see a hundred people tomorrow, maybe not, maybe a hundred, maybe, maybe a dozen or two who've never heard the gospel. Who've never heard the gospel. Yes, God brought you here for your job, but I think he's got an even bigger reason why you're here. Because you know the word of truth and you're surrounded by people who need to hear it desperately. Let this make you bold in sharing the gospel. Now, share it wisely. Don't stand on a street corner and start preaching. That's not allowed in this country. You want to honor this country and their laws. But you are free to share your story of Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection and how he saved you. You can share your story all day long humbly and, and not argumentatively and, and not on soapboxes, okay? You can do that. So do it. A hundred years from now, you're going to be there. The new heavens, the new earth. Jacob would stay here and say, trust the promise. God will fulfill this promise of, of the new heavens and the new earth. Look at what's going to be true a hundred years from now and let that free you from fear, free you from timidity, break your heart for those who are facing hell forever. So you share the gospel.
Okay. There's more here. Next, Jacob tells Joseph about God. So how does Jacob describe God? This is verses 8 through 16, the last couple of verses of this section. Start with verse 8. When Israel, Jacob, saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? He, he couldn't see very well, so he hadn't seen them clearly up to that point. Joseph said to his father, they are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel, Jacob, were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he, Jacob, kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel, Jacob, stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, and here's where we see what he, how he describes God. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them, let these boys grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now notice that Jacob blesses his sons with two particular blessings here. The honor of carrying the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the blessing of growing to be a multitude in the midst of the earth. So he does bless them, but notice what he emphasizes even more here is his descriptions of God. He gives three descriptions of God. And all of these are true for those in the Old Testament who trusted what God would do for the Messiah, and these are true for those in the New Testament who trust what God has done through the Messiah, Jesus. So because you're trusting Jesus Christ right now, each of these three is true for you. So it's just like a treasure. It's like, like you've just gotten three Christmas presents and you want to open them each up. So the first one is that God will make himself known to us. I think that's the main point of the idea that they walked before God. If you walk before God, that means you know God. God's made his presence real to you. You're, you're living in his presence. You know that he's here. You don't just know about God, as important as that is, but you know God and you're walking before him in his presence. God makes himself known to us through Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, do you know God? Do you know him? And what this means is that we can talk to God. Do, do you spend time during your day talking to him? while you're driving, while you're at work, while you're doing the laundry, whatever you're doing. It means we can trust God. The, the Bible is, is full of hundreds of God's promises. And, and do you go through the day trusting this promise, trusting this promise, trusting that promise? It means we can feel God's presence. There are times in every believer's life when we're in prayer, 
when we're in worship like here Friday mornings, when you're reading the scriptures, studying the scriptures, there are times where God gives you a taste of his real presence, his beauty, his majesty, his nearness, and your heart is filled. That's ours because of Jesus. We can pour out our souls before God. When you're struggling with a temptation, do you say, God, I'm being tempted, help me. When you're weak in faith, you say, Father, look at how weak my faith is right now, strengthen me. Do you pour out your soul, what's really in your soul before God? He wants you to do that. That's walking before God. That's having God make himself known to us. And then we can worship God. Here Friday mornings, love what the worship team is doing here, what Pastor Ben's doing in our worship. We can worship God. We can adore him. We can love him. God, you are my joy. You are my prize. Jesus, I love you more than anything, or I, I want to help me love you more, but we're worshiping him, and as we do that, he'll come and meet us. So here's this first Christmas package. God will make himself known to us. Just let that encourage you to press in this week with prayer, to press in this week with your own Bible reading and Bible study, to press in this week with fellowship and, and with worship. Then second, God will be our shepherd. So we're all sheep, right? The Bible says that. And sheep, sheep can't find out where they're supposed to go. They can't guide themselves. They can't find where water is. They can't find green pastures to feed from. They can't protect themselves from wolves or hyenas or lions or tigers. Sheep without a shepherd is an ugly picture. We have a shepherd. We have a shepherd. And he will guide our paths. He will direct us. He will lead us to the living water of the Holy Spirit. He will lead us to lush green pastures of feeding in his word, letting, letting his words feed us. He will protect us from sin and from Satan. We have a shepherd. Because of Jesus Christ, you have a shepherd. Trust him. I thought about this yesterday. If there's any area of your life that you're worried about right now, something that you're, you're really gripped with worry, that shows that you're not trusting that God is your shepherd. Because shepherds mean the sheep have nothing to worry about, right? Just follow the shepherd, right? It doesn't mean everything's gonna be easy, but oh, you can trust him. Trust him, he's your shepherd. And then third, God will be the angel who redeems us from all evil. Now that word angel might sound puzzling because we tend to think of an angel like, like Michael the archangel, a created being, spirit being, that's what angels are. But the word angel can mean more than that. Remember the angel of the Lord who appeared to Abraham earlier in the book of Genesis? The angel of the Lord is clearly in that context God in human form. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus is God in human form, and that Jesus redeems us from all evil. So that's what's being talked about here. He's not talking about Gabriel the archangel. He's talking about God. I think he's talking about Jesus. And maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but, but it's pointing towards Jesus for sure because the angel of the Lord occurs a couple of different times in the book of Genesis already. And he redeems us from all evil. He can protect us from trials that come our way. He often does that. 
He can take trials that we are already in and that he's choosing to allow to stay and he can redeem those trials so those trials become opportunities of standing before God uh, like you're on holy ground and he makes his presence so real to you that you say this trial is worth it all. If this trial means this much nearness to God, then yes, he can redeem trials in that way. He can redeem us from all the evil of the guilt of our sin by his death on the cross as we confess our sins and trust him. We're completely washed clean from the guilt of sin. He can redeem us from the evil of the power of our sin as we cry out to him by the power of the Holy Spirit who can so satisfy us that sin's temptations are broken and that we are cleansed from sin's power progressively through our lives. God is the angel, the angel of the Lord who redeems us from all evil. That's what Jacob tells Joseph and us and Joseph's sons and us about God. Beautiful description of who God is. Next, something else is puzzling. Jacob changes the birth order of Joseph's sons. Why does he change their birth order? Look at verses 17 through 20. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head, because Manasseh was the firstborn. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know, he also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Okay, Manasseh was the firstborn, biologically, all right? Ephraim was the secondborn, but Jacob makes Ephraim the firstborn and Manasseh the secondborn. Why? Again, I'm not entirely sure, but let me just throw out what, what makes the most sense to me. First of all, it was not to punish Manasseh. You can see that because he says, oh, Manasseh's going to be great. He will also be great. So no punishment of Manasseh going on here. But by making Ephraim the firstborn, he was saying that Ephraim would be greater. And why does he do that? It happens a couple times in the Old Testament where God switches the birth order from how it was biologically to how it's going to be in reality. Why does that happen here? I think the point is to help us see that God's blessings are not earned by anything in us, but they are undeserved gifts from God. God's blessings are not deserved or earned by anything that's true of you or anything that you've done. All of God's blessings are undeserved gifts from God. For example, why are you saved? It's not because you were baptized. Baptism is good, but baptism doesn't save you. It's not because you're a church member. Church membership is good, but that's not what saves you. 
You are saved as an undeserved gift from God. He gave you a new heart. He gave you faith. He gave you repentance. It all has come from him. So we are humbled because the entire gift of salvation is from God alone. He gets the glory. We get the salvation. We're humbled in the process. He's exalted in the process. But it's that the blessing is not something that we earn or deserve by who we are or what we've done. It's an undeserved gift from God. It's true about salvation. It's also true, say, about your job or your career. Why do you have the job that you do? Well, you, you probably worked hard, and that's a good thing, but even if you worked hard, even that ability to work hard and the motivation to work hard and the working hard came from God as a gift, an undeserved gift. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you didn't receive as a gift from God? And if you received it, why do you boast? As if you hadn't received it. So your job, your career, think about your family, your friends, the financial resources you might have, undeserved gifts from God. So don't boast in anything God's given you. They're all blood-bought gifts that display the glory of his mercy, not the self-reliance and all-sufficiency of us. So important. I think that's why this switching of birth order going on here to remind us. Okay, there's two more verses in this chapter. How does Jacob conclude these last words to Joseph? Look at verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you. And that you in the Hebrew is plural, and will bring you, plural, again to the land of your fathers. So again, here Jacob summarizes God's promises. God will be with you, plural, with, with his people. God will be with you. And God will bring you, plural, all of you, into the land of your fathers. That's the land of Canaan, the promised land for the people of Israel and those who've been joined to them, and for all of us now who are trusting Christ in the New Testament time to the new heavens and the new earth. So again, the, re the promise is repeated here again at the end of this section. Then verse 22. Moreover, I have given to you, singular, talking to Joseph, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now, why does God mention this? Why does Jacob mention this? I think it's one more way that Jacob wants to encourage Joseph to trust God's promises. I think that's why. Jacob is saying, we are now in Egypt, right? There's food here. We're in the land of Goshen. Things are going well. We are now in Egypt. But I am so confident of God's promise that he will take us back to the promised land and that he will give us the promised land that I'm going to declare publicly now, I give you this plot of land there that's mine. By giving to you, I'm calling you, trust God's promise that God will take you back there just as God has promised. So this whole point in verse 22 is trust God's promise. And that's where I think God wants to leave us here at the end of this Chapter. That's where Jacob, if he were here, he'd be saying to us, Grace Church, trust God's promise. And that's what I want to say to you, Grace Church, trust God's promise. What promises have we seen here in this chapter? God has promised that he's going to save a company of peoples, people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. This is what God is doing. This is what he's doing in Abu Dhabi. Trust him. God has promised to give his people the new earth, as, as the, the land, forever, an everlasting possession, 
filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That is your secure and certain destiny. That's where you are going, and you'll be there forever. He's promised. Trust him. God has promised that he can be known by us. So trust that promise and press in this week. God, I want to know you more through Jesus Christ. God has promised to be a shepherd to us. Trust him. Don't worry about that problem. Ask him to help you. Trust him. And God has promised that in Jesus, he will redeem us from all evil. The guilt of our sin paid for on the cross, the power of sin broken through the resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus will redeem us from all evil. So Grace Church, trust him. God is faithful to his promises. This is what Jacob is saying to Joseph in this chapter, and this is what Jacob would say to us. Trust God's promises. Let's stand together. I want to pray for us that we'll take this to heart. Lord, I pray that you would bring your power right now, especially on those here who are not yet trusting Jesus Christ. We are so glad you brought them here this morning. And Lord, we plead with you that you would right now show your glory to them even more clearly, show your love to them in Christ even more clearly, take out the heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, give them faith in Jesus and save them now, Lord, we pray. Do that and then pour your love upon them. Pour your forgiveness upon them in Christ. Let them know you, Lord God, I pray. Save many people right now by your power. Lord, I pray for us that we would, we would trust your promises more, that you'd strengthen our faith in your promises. We thank you for your promises, which are true for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, strengthen our trust in your promises, I pray. We all have promises we need to trust you for more, so strengthen us in that now. And Lord, we praise you for what a big, glorious, beautiful God you are and your worldwide plan of salvation, people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, and the promise of the new heavens and the new earth forever. You are great. We worship you. We praise you, and we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.